Democratic Socialist Republic of Sri Lanka, usually shorthanded as just Sri Lanka, is an island nation located just off the southeast coast of India in the Indian Ocean. Its administrative capital city is Kote. Its largest city is also its commercial capital, Colombo, and there are nearly 116,000 people living in the former and about 753,000 in the latter. Just as India has long been of historic and strategic importance for entities well beyond Asia, so too has Sri Lanka, as its adjacency to the many and varied powerful civilizations living in what is today India has made it a thriving and happening spot for cultural and commercial purposes, and its deep harbors has allowed it to play a role in both the ancient and modern permutations of the Silk Road. It can host ships that other nearby ports cannot, and it has served as a sort of proxy port for the civilizations based on the Indian subcontinent since at least the mid-300s BC, and probably earlier than that as well. Like most trade hubs of this kind, Sri Lanka's population is a diverse mix of other cultures that used it as a stopover and eventually as a second base of operations. So folks throughout Asia, but also Europe, set up shop and then eventually put down roots on this island throughout the preceding centuries, and especially once the ancient Silk Road, supported by the trade of textiles and spices throughout the Eastern world, became established and Sri Lanka became a major node in that larger network. Between 993 and 1017 AD, a civilization based in India called the Chola Empire invaded and conquered what is today Sri Lanka and incorporated it into the larger mainland-based empire as an outlying province. In 1070, that imperial government was overthrown by Sinhalese loyalists, the Sinhalese being the dominant culture in the region before the Chola Empire showed up. The Sinhalese culture was oriented around a monarchy that was established on the island back in something like 543 BC, and they also, at that point, had crossed the channel from the mainland. The Sinhalese were carved up into sometimes warring factions, and the Chola conquest served to unify these groups under a new crown in opposition to the Chola, and that crown then went on to rule over the kingdom of Palanarua, which lasted from around 1056, before the Chola Empire was completely booted from the island, until around 1212, when the island was invaded by another Indian force, which made the local government into a tributary, but they were then invaded yet again in 1232, at which point the northern portion of the island, and the people living in it, were incorporated into a new kingdom, and the rest of the island was carved up into six other kingdoms, some the consequence of foreign invaders, some the domains of locals who were intent on defending their home turf from those foreign invaders. In the early 16th century, the Portuguese arrived and found that the island at that moment was cut up into seven different kingdoms, all of them basically at each other's throats constantly, and they set up a fort in Colombo from which they slowly took over, both politically and religiously, persecuting and pushing out anyone who didn't convert to Christianity. The Dutch showed up about a century later and signed a treaty with one of the last standing non-Portuguese leaders that would have the Dutch boot the Portuguese from the island in exchange for a trade monopoly. 
Neither side was honest in their dealings, though, and the Dutch ultimately decided to just capture Colombo instead, and then most of the rest of the island, except for the deep interior, and that conquest was completed by 1660. There was a period during which the Dutch held the whole coast of what is today Sri Lanka, and during that time, the core of the island was run by what became known as the Kingdom of Kandy, with a K. During the Napoleonic Wars in Europe, when Napoleon was stomping around and conquering pretty much everything, terrifying everybody for a while, the British became worried that the French taking control of the Netherlands might also give them control of Sri Lanka, which at the time was called Ceylon, and which, remember, is located just off the coast of India, which the British held as a colony at the time. So the British swept in and occupied the coastal areas of Ceylon, which the Dutch ceded to them, and made it a colony, before then invading the interior and being fended off by the Kingdom of Kandy. Though a little over a decade later, in 1815, the Kingdom of Kandy was annexed, and the whole of the island was then under British rule. What followed was a more conventional colonial storyline, where the British figured out what could be easily planted on the island, converted everything into plantations for coffee, tea, and rubber, and then made use of most of the locals as serfs or slaves in order to churn out more of those very lucrative and desirable, back home at least, raw goods. During this period, a whole lot of Tamil people a culture living in the southern portion of India, were shipped to the island to work as indentured labor, and that dramatically changed the demographics of the island, as the Tamil people soon made up a significant portion of the overall population. Some early democratic governmental elements were introduced by the British in 1833, and in 1909, some rumblings about making a local constitution began to emerge, those rumblings became action in the 1930s, despite local elites trying to keep universal suffrage from happening. They didn't want the commoners to be able to vote for the same reasons elites around the world throughout history have opposed the same. And though the caste system and ethnic divisions kept folks from unifying for a long time, movement toward independence continued leading up to World War II, when the island, still called Ceylon at this point, served as a British military base aimed at the Japanese. Ceylon became a dominion in 1949 after establishing some treaties with Britain following the war, and a nationalist Marxist movement in the mid-1950s eventually culminated in a Maoist uprising that, against all odds, succeeded, at least for a bit, before being put down by government security forces. But this continued into 1971, the middle of the Cold War, so movements of this kind, no matter how ill-prepared, tended to find support from other communist and communist-flavored efforts around the world, especially in Asia. So in 1972, the Dominion of Ceylon became the Democratic Socialist Republic of Sri Lanka, and in 1978, the constitution was changed dramatically, getting rid of British-style governance and instead opting for a French-style presidential system. There was quite a lot of terrorism 
and anti-governmental activity during this period, from the late 1970s until the early 2000s. As ethnic tensions rose, various groups wanted different sorts of governmental rule and representation, and groups like the Tamil Tigers, representing the Tamil ethnic group, fought various Sinhalese groups, both sides scuffling to rebalance the law in their favor toward their practices, language, and so on. The conflict during this period got so bad that it's often called the Sri Lankan Civil War, and the anti-government insurgency several times almost succeeded by several measures. This conflict officially ended in 2009, though, and the country has enjoyed relatively free and open democratic elections from 2010 onward, though a few candidates have been arrested by their opposition in the wake of these elections, and there's a whole lot of nepotism and allegations of corruption in pretty much every election at pretty much every level of governance. There have also been sporadic terrorist attacks in Colombo, in particular, with one major coordinated attack perpetrated by Islamic terrorist groups in mid-2019, claiming 267 lives and causing at least 500 injuries. What I'd like to talk about today is how things have been going in Sri Lanka these past few years, and why the Sri Lankan government has found itself and its economy on the brink of possible collapse over the past several weeks. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from Reuters, and it's entitled, Sri Lanka unilaterally suspends external debt payments, says it needs money for essentials. Over the past two years or so, the Sri Lankan economy and government haven't done great. This has partially been the consequence of the COVID-19 pandemic, which hit the world's economic output and norms like a hammer and threw a lot of plans and foundations off kilter and in some cases completely upended them. In Sri Lanka's case, their economy saw higher growth than their regional peers from the early 2000s up through 2012, an annual growth rate of around 6.4% on average, which is really good. This growth was primarily driven by what are called non-tradable sectors, though, things like transportation, food services, construction, and real estate, which is tricky growth to sustain over long periods because they can be both inequitable and less tradable on the international market in the sense that you can't export these services nor easily make them more efficient by offshoring components of them. Thus, their growth slowed, their local GDP essentially stagnated, and the country was eventually reclassified from upper-middle income to lower-middle income by the World Bank in late 2020. Before that stagnation, though, the Sri Lankan government did manage to cut extreme poverty in the country by half and was able to start tackling a bunch of other pernicious social issues that many countries struggle with, whatever their size, like ecological sustainability, inclusiveness, and the elimination of the remnants of their historical caste system and ethnic tensions. But those efforts started to dry up when things got bad with the emergence of COVID. Part of the issue there is that Sri Lanka's economy shifted heavily towards services over the past few decades, and they became a dominant shipping and aviation hub for South Asia, only to have that status, plus their burgeoning reputation as a tourist destination, 
collapse under the weight of regular but inconsistent lockdowns and the many and varied snarls that complicated and collapsed countless aspects of the global supply chain. The country saw a sovereign rating downgrade in 2020 as well, which means outside entities assessed the country's creditworthiness and found them wanting, and then basically lowered their credit score as a consequence. And they started printing more money while also instigating new import controls, which contributed to the government's declaration that the country was going through its worst economic downturn since it achieved independence from Britain in 1948. Their economy shrank by 3.6% in 2020. Their debt rose to 101% of national GDP, up from 86.8% in 2019. And the country's foreign debt reserves were beginning to look a little skimpy, foreign debt reserves being the holdings of currencies from other countries that governments keep on hand so they can buy stuff from other nations. And this can be actual dollar bills or yen or euros, or it can be foreign treasury bills, bonds, and the like. The majority of the world's foreign exchange reserves are held in USDs because the US dollar is the most convertible and widely accepted currency on the planet right now. Other currencies are also used for other purposes, though, and some products necessitate the use of the selling government's currency rather than USDs or another more commonly accepted banknote. These foreign reserves also serve the double purpose of ensuring a government won't go completely broke if something happens to their local currency. So if an inflationary spiral leaves a government's currency with a super low value all of a sudden, they've still got some of their resources, some of their stockpiled wealth in another, possibly many other, currencies, which means they haven't lost everything and can still buy stuff internationally and utilize those units of exchange for things they need to do including, potentially, buying up a bunch of their own currency, which can, in turn, raise its value enough to stop or slow that inflation. So foreign reserves are important. Most governments hold a whole lot of them. And the majority of foreign reserves are held in dollars because that's the most commonly used intermediary currency on the planet right now. But others, like the British pound or euro or Chinese yuan, are also used in some cases and stockpiled on a just-in-case basis. This piece in Reuters is about a foreign reserve issue in Sri Lanka. More specifically, the Sri Lankan government has very few foreign reserves right now and is having trouble buying things they need to buy as a consequence. And among the things they need to buy are food and fuel. Fairly fundamental commodities. And although fuel tankers have been waiting at their docks to unload, the government hasn't been able to muster the necessary foreign currency to pay for said fuel. And that's led to power cuts that last up to 13 hours a day for weeks on end, which has in turn caused businesses to shudder, food and medicines to expire, people sweating through extreme heat without being able to use their fans and other cooling devices, and has left their vital infrastructure, like hospitals and government services, unable to function at full capacity, and in some cases, function at all. Even wealthier members of society have found themselves facing food and energy shortages, and the rupee, the local currency, has declined in value by 30% against the dollar over the course of about a month. So there are not only shortages and blackouts, there's also a free-falling currency that in practical terms means locals are losing 
money every single day because the rupees in their bank accounts and pockets are worth less every single day. This has been a recipe for unhappiness and unrest, despite the ruling party's hold on local politics and power. The president came into office in 2019 and quickly dissolved the legislature and hired friends and family for pretty much every important governmental position, which in turn led to an overwhelming victory for his party in 2020, which topped up parliament with more of his people. All of that gave the ruling party an immense amount of power, and they were able to further consolidate that power by doing popular things, like building out infrastructure and slashing taxes, and funding those efforts and tax cuts with large amounts of debt. This seemed like a prudent choice to those in charge in the months leading up to the pandemic, but when things started to go sideways, they kept moving forward as usual, anticipating a return to normalcy that would bring a windfall surge of tourism to the island from China, which in turn would allow them to service their debts on schedule. But alas, this was not to be. The pandemic just kept going and going, and the myriad uncertainties surrounding it have kept international tourism from returning to its previous optimistic highs, and Sri Lanka's debt levels have just kept growing throughout this period. Fast forward to today, and we've got a country ruled by an all-powerful president and his party at all levels, up and down the political power pyramid, and locals, rich and poor and in between, are seeing their wealth diminish, their hospitals shut down, their grocery store shelves empty, and are unable to use electricity for the majority of each day. Protests and then riots began to break out across the country, and the government initially responded to these outcries with violence and intimidation, which only seemed to make them worse, leading to still more protests of an ever more intense and violent flavor. The president then declared a state of emergency and sent in the military to deal with what he considered to be violent hooligans who were making a bad situation worse. He then imposed a week-long curfew and social media ban, neither of which worked. People continued to protest and fill the streets, and they continued to figure out how to access social media and complain about everything that was going wrong, including the social media ban itself. On April 3rd of this year, the president restored access to social media and dismissed his cabinet, leaving only himself and his prime minister, his brother, at the top of the leadership heap. He then brought in a new finance minister who resigned after just 24 hours on the job. The president's coalition partners withdrew their support from the government, leaving the president without his previously enjoyed parliamentary majority, and the state of emergency was withdrawn shortly thereafter, but that didn't convince the protesters to go home. They're still calling for his resignation, and his political opposition are now calling for him to leave and dismissing his offer to install and join an interim government. The Sri Lankan government must pay $7 billion in debt and interest payments, most of it in U.S. dollars, by the end of 2022, and a $1 billion bond payment is due in July, with other smaller, in the tens of millions of dollars rather than billions of dollar payments, are due in the months in between. That is far more than the country has in U.S. dollars or any foreign currencies in their reserves. Consequently, the Sri Lankan Central Bank has announced it will be suspending external debt payments in order to meet its vital local needs, like fuel and food. So all that money it borrowed leading up to the pandemic, the plan is to not make payments on that debt or the interest accrued from it. 
There have been reports from medical professionals within Sri Lanka that unless something dramatic changes soon, they will likely see more deaths from this debt-related situation because of a lack of medicine and food than from COVID-19, which demonstrates the stakes here. As this isn't a case of people losing luxuries and other wants, it's a case of people not having fundamental needs. And a lot can go wrong when people no longer have the medicine they need to live or food for their families. At the same time, although financial professionals within the country are saying this decision to just not pay their debt and to almost certainly default as a consequence might be a good thing because it could allow them to reach an agreement with the International Monetary Fund sooner rather than later to get things sorted out and make a plan for payments in the future, there's a chance that this impending default could negatively impact their long-term economic prospects. Basically, they will have gone from being a country that has never defaulted, never failed to pay back debt on time, to a country that consciously decided to do so, which could cause potential investors and those who might otherwise loan them money to rethink dealing with them in the future. And if nothing else, it will almost certainly raise the interest rates they'll have to pay on any debt they take for a long time, because they'll be thought of as a big risk rather than a sure thing. Bailout and debt restructuring talks with the IMF will begin the week this episode goes live, but it's unclear how soon these talks will result in enough stability and additional foreign reserve resources that they'll be able to get electricity flowing on a regular basis again, and enough food and medicine back on shelves so that their citizenry are no longer facing the near-term potential of medical disaster or creeping starvation. It's also unclear at this point if the president will double down on his power grab, becoming more brutal as his rule becomes more threatened, or if the opposition or some other political entity will step in to handle the ongoing crisis and negotiations with the IMF. The book I'd like to recommend today is called Termination Shock by Neil Stevenson. This is one of those authors who I expect to read everything he puts out, but I always remind myself I'll need to get about one-third of the way through the often fairly chunky book before I understand what's going on and start enjoying it. And this book was no different. He spends a whole lot of time world-building, and then you start to get a sense of who the characters are and start to appreciate them and find their weirdness interesting or frightening or delightful. This particular book is near-future science fiction related to climate change and the possibility of maybe doing something dramatic to influence that climate change. But as also tends to be the case in his works, some of the most interesting elements are the background elements, the things that are just kind of happening casually in the background without being commented upon that demonstrate what is happening in this world that's being described. And the world in question, in this case, is a frighteningly near-future Earth in which we are seeing more of what we're already beginning to see now in terms of amplified climate change-related weather events, and just a changing default status internationally as a consequence of all that uncertainty and that paradigm shift. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Termination Shock by Neil Stevenson. 
You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a portfolio of all of my work, including my other podcasts, at understandery.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook, and at Colin is my name on most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.